Hello, welcome to Navara FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. How did the British Empire change the world as we know it? How does it still impact foreign policy, the education sector, the charity sector, environmentalism, healthcare, and beyond? According to writer, journalist, and broadcaster Sathnam Sanghera, the empire that once ruled over a quarter of the globe's surface has deep, wide-ranging, but ultimately contradictory legacies, ones that are still with us today. Sathnam is a columnist and feature writer for The Times and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He presented the Channel 4 documentary series Empire State of Mind. In 2021, he published Empire Land, which chronicles the impact of empire and imperial thinking in British society today. It attracted some vitriol from the right for its insufficient praise of, or even gratitude for, what some people in British public life still want to claim as the glories of the British Empire. It also attracted some criticism from the left for what some, myself admittedly included, saw as an overly even-handed approach to an uncomplicatedly negative history of exploitation. This month, he's back with a follow-up titled Empire World. This book expands its viewpoint to take in the global sweep of the British Empire and how it reshaped the land we walk on, the climate we live in, the clothes we wear, and of course, the tea we drink. Sathnam's account chronicles the monstrosities of imperial rule that we have still not faced up to, and also claims that it should be given some credit for the spread of democracy to certain parts of the world. Ultimately, he says that both the left and the right have an oversimplified view of our shared history. I wanted to ask him about how we count the cost of historical disasters, what balance looks like, and when moral simplicity might be warranted. I wanted to know more about how a quote-unquote complex view of empire plays out in British public life. We delved into his historical research into quinine, rubber and rum, into the sugar plantations of Barbados and the seed libraries at Kew Gardens. Just a quick note, sorry about the slightly uneven sound quality in parts of this show. Satnam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, this a book, Empire World, is a follow-up to Empire Land, um, your book from a few years ago. And in that book, you said that you sort of weren't particularly aware of the kind of depth and breadth and scale and also the brutality of the British Empire due to, you know, your British education. I'm sure that a lot of listeners can relate. So I'm left wondering how your thinking has shifted through the process of putting together both of those books. Lots of things have changed. I guess the main thing is that in Empire Land, I endlessly went on about how the legacies of empire are complex. But I think I've realised by spending another two years thinking of the international legacies around the world, is that a lot of the legacies are actually profoundly contradictory. They're more than complex. So, for example, you know, without a doubt, the British Empire resulted, for com- with complicated reasons, in democracy in some parts of the world. But it also resulted in massive instability and chaos in all sorts of in, in Sudan, in Nigeria, in Kashmir, in Palestine. Um, it resulted in massive environmental destruction, without a doubt. But it also gave birth to the beginning of the environmental movement, environmentalism. It spread the free press at certain stages, but it also spread press censorship. So the fundamental contradictory nature of the legacies is what really sank in this time. 
I'm curious as to about how you think through the difference between the sort of complexity and a contradictory nature of these things. Because often we do um, encounter histories of the British Empire in a way that you think of or the way that you frame as the balance sheet view. It's like, sure, there were uh, atrocities, but there were also railways. There was free press, but there was also press censorship. You do inveigh against the balance sheet view of history, but I'm wondering um, how you would encapsulate how your thinking differs from that. Yeah, I guess all the, the, the surveys of the British Empire, the legacies I've read in my lifetime, have either been claiming that the legacies are overall really bad or overall really good. I mean, Nara Ferguson famously claiming it is all good, overall good overall, and then you had Quasi Kwarteng, bizarrely, for a right-winger, saying that the legacies were mostly negative. And I think for me, the ridiculousness of the balance sheet view is encapsulated by the legacies of slavery. Because, you know, I was talking this through with an with a imperial historian, and he was like, okay, so you could say, we sent three million Africans across the Atlantic. Crime against humanity, absolutely awful, Right. But then there's abolition. And we freed, what, 800,000 people in abolition, say. So does that mean that the evil of slavery far outweighs the good of abolition? It's a ridiculous argument because those on the abolition side could say, actually, we, we freed 800,000 people, but we also stopped tens of millions of people from becoming enslaved. And you end up with this absurd calculations and actually, I think it's much better to just say that opposite things can be true at the same time. That, yes, there was abolition. Just because we abolished slavery doesn't mean we can't talk about the evils of slavery and vice versa. Both things are legacies and we should talk about them as contradictory, complex things. It's an interesting way of encapsulating what a legacy is, because I think a lot of people would strike a difference between kind of literal causation abolition was in some way caused by slavery in that there needs to be a sort of logical priority in terms of the flow of time. Slavery needs to have existed in order for slavery to have abolished, but there is also a kind of key moral difference there. You can talk about the difference between the moral causation of that um, in that, like, is it right to attribute the abolition of slavery as a legacy of empire, I'm sure a lot of people will be sort of having a lot of trouble with that. Yeah, framing. yeah, I had trouble with it. Right, I had a trouble with it. I'll give you another example. Okay, uh, national parks. Okay, so the British, you know, destroyed a lot of the environment wherever they went, and then they set up national parks, say in places like New Zealand and Australia. National parks are generally seen as a good thing, right? Uh, they're protecting the environment and animals and so on, but. The people who set up these national parks, the imperialists, they often had destroyed the environment or hunted the animals to extinction in the first place. And then once they opened these national parks, the people living on them, the indigenous people, the First Nations people, aren't allowed to live their lives like they would have done before the arrival of the imperialists. Mm. So overall, would you say national parks were good or bad? All you can say... It was deeply complex. But I understand you're you're pro probably coming from the left, so you might struggle <laughs> with some of that. But I've, I mean, like I was saying to you before the podcast, I've talked to a right-wing <laughs> uh, podcast early in the week, and they had a problem with, from the opposite side. And I would say, look, our endless talking about 
the good and the bad hasn't got us anywhere over the last 30 years. Talking about the legacy, all that happens is that we reenact empire. We reenact the tensions between the colonizers and the colonized. And I, I'm, I'm just, I think a certain number of historians, of which hopefully I'm, I'm one, are trying to find a way through to make our conversation about the legacy of empire a bit more sane. <laughs> Um, well, coming from uh, apparently one of the sort of um, outriders for left-wing in- insanity, um, lovingly so, um, I feel like maybe there's a difference here that we can get into later because I do want to um, investigate your historical research because there's a, there's a lot of it to get into. And I think, um, yeah, listeners be sort of very interested to get into the nitty gritty of um, quinine and disease and uh, imperial um, legislation and all that kind of stuff. But I, I do want to dwell for a little bit here on the idea of the complexity um, obviating our ability to make um moral claims about whether things are good and bad. And I'm wondering like how you arrive at that as a historian, because um, the sort of an institutional analysis w- would say that, you know, just because um, there are sort of downstream positive effects doesn't mean that you can't make claims about X phenomenon being at its root a negative thing in the totally, world. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying, I mean, Transatlantic was a crime against humanity. I'm just saying, I'm talking about the people coming to an overall conclusion. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, we talk about endless, there's endless things I cover in the book. You know, the two million people who might have died of partition. No one is saying that is good, right? Um, I'm just talking about these surveys which I've done about the legacies of empire, which tend to come to an overall conclusion. I am saying I'm not coming to an overall conclusion. I'm just trying to trace the legacies on a more in a more local way and allowing the contradictions to coexist. Another another analogy I'll draw here is with the climate. So you say, look, I want to study the climate of the last 350 years, roughly the length of British Empire, right? Yeah. And I would say until now the historians have said, I want to study the climate, but I only want to study the rain. Or I only want to study the sunshine. There's a lot of people like Niall Ferguson and uh, Nigel Bigger, right? They only want to focus on the positives. I think just studying the rain or the sunshine won't give you a good sense of the climate. You have to look at the way in which the rain and the sunshine interacted and all the other weather that happened as well. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's challenging. I found this really challenging as well when I first started thinking about it. But this is where five years of thinking about it has led me. It's interesting, of course, because there are places in your book where you are very strident in your criticisms of um, the many horrors of empire, the large scale famines, the massacres, the individual um, degradation of individual colonized subjects. Uh, and there is some, sometimes a um, an awareness in the writing of the audience who you are writing to. There are moments where you go, OK, so just before you call me part of the wokarati, um, hear me out. I'm wondering how how um, those sort of discourses with a British public sphere, which does tend to come down on the side of empire, two thumbs up, has shaped your thinking? I would say, actually, it's pretty equal, the grief I get. <laughs> I think I get equally criticised by people. Actually, to be honest, that's not true. I probably get much more criticised by the right uh, for being not positive enough about empire. I think that's been the not dominant narrative of Britain generally in our mainstream press and even on our mainstream broadcasting and so on, right? But I do get criticised quite regularly by people in my life who just quite rightly 
you know, are children of the colonized or have experience of it who cannot and do not want to see anything rosy about empire. But I mean, it's just, I just think is it, to see empire through that prism doesn't lead you to a huge amount of understanding. Empire was different things in different parts of the world. It was different things in different parts of the day. Someone in, in the 19th century in India might have had an encouraging experience with empire in the morning. Say a, a police officer might have helped him sort out a dispute with his neighbor. And then the evening, he might have an awful, degrading experience of imperial racism. Someone like Gandhi, he was really into imperial values at one stage of his life. Then he became empire's number one enemy. So his experience of empire changed during his lifetime. And I think empire was fundamentally a complicated, contradictory, changeable thing. We can point to perhaps a positive experience or a neutral experience that an individual Indian under colonization has with a colonial police officer and then a negative experience that they might have with a colonial police officer. And uh, we're not necessarily getting to the root there of why that police officer is there in the first place, what the police as an institution are there to do, to, which to me, I mean, you know, as the sort of anti-spectator outrider here, um, to me that that is a case where we can start to make morally simple claims of that's yeah, I not great. I, to <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from. But, you know, this week I got slagged off at great length by Tristan Hunt in um, oh. the, the TLS oh, God. <laughs> for being for being way too negative about empire. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's just found it unbearable. I, I just feel like... It hasn't got us anywhere, just endlessly reenacting the pain of it. And it, actually looking at it at a more local level and a thematic level is, is a bit healthier because that's where the real complexity comes out. So breaking it up into themes like I do in the book, I think that's where you get a real sense of the complexity. So let's dig into it then. Um, apart from uh, as much as I would like to uh, individually um, celebrate you um, hurting Tristan Hunt's feelings. Um, <laughs> let's get into some of your research because there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. Um, you have uh, focused on um, the environmental, agricultural, ecological transformations that have come as a result of empire, both in its uh, in intentional and unintentional ways. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about this before because for me, plants are basically interior design. Right. Um, I hadn't really thought of plants as an arm of the British Empire, but they were. They were. They were a medium through which the British really, you know, colonized and conquered large swathes of the planet. So, for example, cinchona, which is the tree bark that produces quinine, mm. and the production of that by the British Empire and other empires basically enabled the colonization of Africa. Because before then, the European colonists were dropping dead as soon as they arrived in in Africa of, of malaria. Right. And then you've got rubber. Again, I didn't realize rubber was a plant, but it could be a plant sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the British went heavily into rubber and the rise of the motor car meant that, you know, British Malaya was hugely profitable. And when the Malayans decided they wanted to send, set up an in, independent socialist state, this resulted in war with the 1948 Malayan emergency. It was called an emergency because if they called it an emergency, uh, or a war, they, the insurance money wouldn't be paid out. But make no mistake, it was one of the darkest episodes of the British Empire. You know, mass murder, mass arrests, absolutely awful, awful history. And then you got tea, of course, which led to the Opium War to China, where we wanted to pay for tea in, with opium. It led to the loss of the American colonies. It led to the change 
of the Diet in India and in Britain led to massive labor exploitation in parts of the world where people are still being exploited in exactly the same way in Assam. And so these benign plants, Kew Gardens, who were heavily involved in these plant transfers, actually did a lot for the colonial mission. And of course, there was massive environmental destruction. Um, even garden, not of garden plants, like the ferns that decorated a lot of Victorian drawing rooms, you know, to get them, a lot of places around the empire were trampled. A lot of transfer of plant disease. Uh, 60% of New Zealand's forests were destroyed. Barbados' soil was so eroded that at one point they tried to import soil from another colony. So <laughs> huge negative uh, legacies. But at the same time, this inspired the birth of environmentalism. I mean, a lot of the destruction of European colonialism led to modern day environmentalism. So you have British people setting up the Forest Conservancy around Bombay in 1847. You had soil preservation initiatives in St. Helena. You had the creation of national parks, which you've just talked about. You had in 1858, a British scientist observing something that sounded exactly like the greenhouse effect. So again, I would say contradictory legacies. Going back to your example of um, the intense suppression of uh, Malaysia, that happens in the late 1940s. And um, as I'm sure many listeners will be aware of, that's a time of not just a Labour government, but a very sort of triumphalist Labour government comes in after the war, lots of um, social welfare programmes, founds the NHS, all this stuff that we love to talk about. And in your book, you chart not what you know, individual um, British governments are doing Tory, Whig, Labour, whatever it happens to be, but what the British government as a kind of trans-historical unit is doing, what the British state is for. And um, I'm wondering what you think about, you know, what conclusions we can we can draw from this of, you know, uh, how the British state operates, like what British state institutions are there in, to do. Yeah, the interesting thing is that if you look at, you know, how conservatives and Labour politicians have dealt with imperial issues in our lifetime, and there hasn't been much of a difference. I mean, Gordon Brown himself, I mean, probably one of the leftist uh, chancellors we've had, you know, quite jingoistic about empire during his tenure. And the Tories, I think, naturally inclined to be that way because there's a real link between not only empire and the Conservative Party, but historians, imperial historians defending empire and the Conservative Party. So I think there's something about when politicians get into power in Britain that they have to go along with these imperialist attitudes. And I think at the risk of sounding a bit of um, conspiratorial, I think it's to do with the media. I think the media has a imperialist bent. I mean, you've got to remember the Daily Mail and Daily Express set up during empire and they had as their slogans in the 19th century pro-empire statements you know they did a lot did really well from reporting on jingoistically on a lot of the imperial warfare that was happening in the 19th century so i would say it's the media has definitely has a imperial bent so when it comes to the establishment of environmentalism, as you frame it, or environmental charities, there are also analyses, which you touched on in your book as well, according to which the establishment of these kinds of um, pro-social organisations, these kind of um, NGOs or proto-NGOs, if you like, are not just something that has like a complex or a multifarious legacy, but they are also very much um 
part of the state. They're very much a kind of an ideological wing of what would otherwise be termed the white man's burden. Like, yes, we are plundering your land, but also we will save some rhinos. We might shoot the rhinos later, but also we will be nice to them like for now. Yeah, that was the thing I was most shocked by, actually, very specifically the animal charities, because... You know, animal charities are wildly popular in Britain. Something like a quarter of people give to animal charities at some point in the year, right? And Fauna and Flora International is one animal charity that was literally set up during empire by the hunters. The people who set up these animal charities had hunted these animals to the point of extinction in the first place. And the reason they set them up was so that they could carry on hunting. So it's, it's a bizarre thing, but in... In, with, the, with the course of time, these charities ended up doing good work. But I think they should acknowledge the history more. I think the royal family, which are heavily involved in animal rights or animal conservation initiatives, need to talk about their own personal history, about the fact that in 1961, Prince Philip shot a tiger. And apparently it was caught on film by the BBC, but was never shown. You know, in 1860, Prince Alfred had 25,000 animals herded for him. Human beings died herding the animals for him. And our stately homes and royal palaces are decorated with the products of this, all the furs, all the animal heads. And yet when our royal family lectures the world about animal rights and animal conservation, they don't talk about their own complicity. And it would make their case stronger if they acknowledge the history. And this is my argument in the book, is that it would make Britain's case stronger with a whole bunch of things when we were lecturing people on democracy and the environment and human rights. It would make our case stronger if we acknowledged our distinctly patchy records on those things during the British Empire. Mm. And uh, the acknowledgement of record touches on a question that I think is is, is rumbling uh, along under the surface of your book, which is, you know, to what extent do we call all of this stuff history and to what extent do we just kind of call it news, right? Because according to a lot of um, critics and observers, that dynamic of, uh, you know, uh, colonial conservation is still something that's very much going on, right? People, um, for instance, in the Democratic Republic of Congo are like currently experiencing uh, a genocide under the auspices of um, organisations which have their roots in um, colonial ventures. It is also justifying itself according to a um, conservationist, pro-environment, anti-climate change rubric. And um, I'm just really um, curious about the extent to which through your thinking and writing you frame empire as something uh, past with a kind of legacy in the present versus the extent to which you frame it as something that is just very much still with us. Oh, it's totally with us. You know, it explains so many things just about our daily life. I mean, tea, rum, the existence of entire nations like Nigeria and Pakistan and Nairobi and Mumbai, uh, the patterns of tax avoidance. Mm. White, white feminism, the drugs <laughs> trade. We were the pioneers of the international drugs trade. You know, BP, HSP, Shell, p all these companies that were rooted in empire and still going on today. And you cannot escape the empire in the daily news. Every day, there's two or three stories in the paper which can be explained by the empire. I mean, Yemen, for example, we, we were mm. there. The East India Company had a base in Aden. Some of the darkest, I mean, stuff caught on film was in Aden. Myanmar, oh my God, we were responsible for creating the power vacuum that created the instability there and also the ethnic classifications, which has led to the current ethnic tensions there. Kashmir, where we sold a Muslim majority state, sold it 
to a known tyrannical Hindu monarch. And we're living with those legacies now. Last week, a huge fuss about Australia Day. And lots of people in Australia not wanting to celebrate it anymore. Because obviously, for some people, it was Invaders and Genocide Day. Mm, so right. The, and in Guyana, there's a, there's a potential war in Guyana around the borders of Guyana, which were established by the British Empire because of Venezuela now is claiming that territory. So this is not ancient history. You know, this is stuff that explains people's lives. And in terms of the legacies of slavery, my God, one of the one of the facts about life in the Caribbean at the moment is that it has one of the highest rates of diabetes. And it's like, mm. what did we do in the Caribbean? We turned it into a place where sugar was produced industrially by the enslaved. Mm. Guess what? They've got high rates of diabetes now. And so that is a, a modern day non-abstract legacy. And I think it shapes people's lives on a daily basis. You've talked in some uh, detail and length, rightly so, about extent to which the British Empire was a, an institution or rather a sort of a series of institutions uh, that exported racism all around the world. And I would love to know more about uh, the connections you find between the kinds of, of work that people are supposed to do and the kind of violence that people are supposed to have done to them and the ways in which people get uh, racialized in the empire. I'm really um, struck, haunted, in fact, by uh, one example that you bring up about the supposed weak spleens of people supposedly in the Indian subcontinent under colonization, which you connect to many, many accounts of people being, I mean, essentially kicked to death by uh, local authorities. Yeah, this is uh, based on the work of an uh, academic it was a surname Collingham, and she found an epidemic of white violence against Indians. Indians were being beaten, servants, uh, just passers-by, were beating up by white imperialists in India all the time. Famously, there were some signs in 19th century Indian hotels where the residents were asked to not strike the servants. And it was said that, oh, they, they're dying because they have weak spleens, because Indians have weak spleens. I mean, obviously, that is not a medical explanation. <laughs> yeah. They were dying because they were being beaten senseless all the time by white people. And this is the thing. I think one of the things that British people find the hardest to believe, but, you know, racial science, mm. uh, when it emerged in the 19th century and which found its darkest uh, manifestation in the Holocaust, when it emerged, it had a distinctly British flavour. You know, it went off to Germany and became something else. It went off into America and became something else there. But it had a distinctly British flavour. And the British uh, developed they, these weird racial theories through the empire. Mm. So they developed all sorts of weird ideas, like, I'm Sikh. So they decided that we were a martial race, which, as you can tell from looking at me, is an absurd idea. No one is born to be a warlike race. I don't like to comment. <laughs> uh, but then they decided, like, the houses in Nigeria were also a warlike mm. race, you know. And we even now, like we whenever we talk about the Nepalese in in British in the British media, we talk about the Gurkhas, who were completely fetishized as a martial mm. race. But also within that you had idea that some races were low, like the Tasmanians Tasmanians were the lowest of the low and, you know, and guess what? There was a genocide of Tasmanians. But also that black people would not work hard unless compelled to. And this racial theory, you know, justified slavery. And so these absurd ideas, which persist today, there's still an idea in the survey suggests that people still believe that certain racial groups are born to work harder than others. You know, these ideas underpinned the British Empire. 
And it's something Britain struggles to accept because we we beat the evil racist Germans in World War Two. You've mm. got Rishi Sunak, an unelected prime minister. So yeah, we're we're beyond racism, but <laughs> obviously we're not. And I think we'd be a healthier nation if we accepted that British Empire was the single most influential incubator, refiner, and propagator of white supremacy in the history of the planet. Tell me more about the different ways in which this concept of of race and how different people experience it changes as the empire changes. Well. There were different phases, but I guess a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm making over. I'm making it simplified, but a lot of racial thinking hardened after the mutiny of 1857 in India, mm. where the British felt betrayed by Indians, where they they felt they'd been murdered en masse by these untrustworthy darkies, and this led to a hardening of attitudes. And also, when black people didn't behave the way white people thought they would after abolition, when they didn't run to work for the British for pay, uh, that also resulted in hardened racism. So from that point on, the late 19th century and the early 20th century became a kind of period of horrific white supremacy. And what I discovered in Empire World is that these white supremacists from around the empire and in America, they all corresponded. They all talked to and they all rallied around certain racial crises. We think it only happens now. We think racism is a modern obsession, right? And um, the way in which on Twitter, racists from America, you know, rally alongside racists in Britain and, and Europe. Actually, this was happening big style in the 19th century. Mm. All sorts of crises would result them in, in corresponding and getting excited. So for example, there was a crisis about Asian migration. I mean, nothing changes, right? Mm. People, uh, people in Australia worried about all the Asians there. People in America are worried about all the Asians there. And they were the politicians were writing to each other, trying to come up with policies like, oh, maybe we can have a literacy test. It all sounds like modern politicians, frankly, coming up with ways of keeping brown people out of these nominally white countries. We've touched on uh, different ways in which people have been put to work, essentially, if I can put it in that sort of slightly flattening term uh, across the British Empire. And there's, of course, the question that rears its head of um, why, aka, why bother on behalf of colonisers? Like, often you get the answer that has something to do with exporting democracy and the white man's burden and all this kind of thing. And um of course, there is the other, I mean, what I would term as the much more obvious, much more compelling case of it's all about the money. Yeah, money was a huge factor. Yeah. I mean, indentured labour. I think this is very poorly understood, even by the descendants of indentured labourers. Why did we, Britain send one million Indians across the world to replace the enslaved over 80 years to do the work that the enslaved were no longer doing? Money. They had plantations of tea, cinchona, rubber to sustain. And so the cheapest way to do that was by getting one million Indians from very poor parts of India to do that work, rather than paying the formerly enslaved properly, incentivizing them to do the work, right? Um, yeah, often it was about money. But also you, you can't underestimate how much the imperialists in the late 19th century were propelled by the civilizing mission. Nowadays, if you call someone a white savior, it's, it's obviously an insult. But I think if you called people in the imperialists in the Victorian age white saviors, they would have been pleased with that description because that's what they saw it as. They saw it as 
taking British values around the world, you know, spreading anti-slavery, but also stopping horrible indigenous, you know, activities like sati, white widow burning and all. A lot of this stuff was actually stuff they didn't fully understand about culture in the parts of the world that they were ruling over. But yeah, they were proud white saviors. And one of the main reasons today we have the largest, one of the largest INGO sectors in the world is because we have a history of intervening in, in, in the world and hence save the children and the British Red Cross and our many, many charities, which I argue in the book, continue to do work with a colonial tinge. And tell me more about that. Yeah, this was, a, a again, a bit of a surprise because uh, obviously you think charities... Um, are doing great work. But also, as charities are very self-critical and they are aware of this probably more than their, as much as their, you know, their critics are. But not only is the size of our international charity sector a reflection of our empire, but also a lot of these our, our biggest charities hired staff and leaders straight from British Empire. So imperialists went straight from running territories and parts of the British Empire to running charities like Save the Children and Christian Aid and so on. And then you've got charities like Save the Children running schools and camps in Malaya during the Malayan emergency, during the Mau Mau crisis in Kenya, you know, and the British Red Cross are running a hearts and mind campaign during the Malayan emergency, trying to convert people to the imperial cause in the name of charity. And I was shocked by that, actually. And the, I don't know if you remember from the book, the 1931 conference on the African child. Yes. And basically no Africans are, barely any Africans invited. Yes, I think it was, it was, it was five and then one African-American and one, I think, um, African of Indian descent and, and, and a tiny handful of people who are actually from the continent. Yeah, and then one person, one, one black man spoke and he was dragged off stage for saying something along the lines of you're only in Africa to make money. <laughs> and I think it was James Ford, if I've got the name right. Um, an incredible speech that hasn't lost its power. But, you know, again, this relates to the modern day because I think uh, in the modern day, Save the Children had a, a similar conference for African children where there weren't many Africans because they couldn't get visas. You know, and so history repeats itself if you don't face up to what happened. But I do think the... INGO, INGO sector is quite good at criticizing itself. And, you know, um, you know, I talk in the book about that critical film that Save the Children um, commissioned and then hid on, but then ultimately showed. And so I think that reflects well on Save the Children. To what extent do you um, think that that kind of self-critical impulse is uh, is something that should it can be weighed in the balance if you like here because there are many people who will argue that the kind of um hair shirt and um parading through the streets weeping that some ingos um both did and do about their role in perpetuating transnational patterns of exploitation is also part of you know the ideological game here going okay we're very sorry we're very embarrassed but also we're gonna um keep doing what we're doing well i guess of all the institutions i look at in empire world charities are the ones who have done the most work mm. you know looking at what they've done i mean comic relief it feels like just as an outdoor observer feels like it's sort of winding itself up you know after some of the criticisms band-aid i mean i think very few people would defend 
or would repeat what Live Aid and Band-Aid did in the modern day. I guess I feel like there's been an under, a growth of understanding there. I think a lot of charities now work hard to have headquarters, not in Britain, to make it less colonial, to be on the ground. They definitely recruit local people to do the work more. So I think there's been a, a sea change in the charitable sector. There just hasn't been in other institutions in Britain. Let's return to the question of um, abolition. Uh, and I'm going to refer reluctantly through um, gritted teeth. Of course, this is an audio only medium. So you, uh, listeners are just going to have to trust me that I am indeed gritting my teeth because yesterday, um, the endless delight that is Jacob Rees-Mogg um, went on his program and said, well, of course, uh, Britain abolished the slave trade. Um, and so please stop talking about it in uh, greater or lesser terms. Um, what you have talked about in your book is actually the money that was paid out basically to buy the freedom of enslaved people um, from uh, slaveholders was something that helped perpetuate indentured labour. I would love to know more about that moment of, of transformation that is often uh, given a ticker tape parade in um, various historical accounts. And it seems like there's, you know, a little bit more complexity there. Yeah, there's a huge, I mean, the way Britain talks about slavery, about abolition, is like they, the British spontaneously abolished slavery and then they abolished it around the world. And they were the first to do it. We weren't the first to do it. It wasn't spontaneous. There's a big gap between the slave trade being abolished and slavery being abolished. Mm. And it was fought tooth and nail at every stage by the plantation lobby. Michael Taylor writes about this really well in his book, you know, the lobbying of the plantation, of the plantation owners, was intense. So much so that they're the ones who get the compensation, 20 million pounds of compensation. And then, of course, the enslaved aren't allowed instant freedom, are they? They are, they are a period of being apprenticeships, being apprentices, where basically they have to work for free and they're still treated terribly. And so there was nothing spontaneous or intrinsically powerfully benign about it. And then you look at the legacies now. I mean, look how in the Caribbean, they, people were left there without any real money to develop an education system, without any real money to set up a healthcare system. And now in the modern day, we continue to poach staff in the Caribbean to work in the NHS. So it's, we're piling misery upon misery, mm. you know. We don't give them the money or the infrastructure, and then we make it even worse. And... You know, the the problem, the lists of uh, demands made by the CARICOM nations, with other Caribbean countries that come together, ask for reparations. You read those, the crests they have, and it's just all so logical. You know, family breakdown. What the hell? We, we, we set up a system where families weren't allowed to stay together. Of course, we created that. We've talked about diabetes. We've talked about the genocide of the Caribs. People f very often forget that before the enslaved arrived in the Caribbean, there were people there called the mm. Caribs and who were more or less wiped out through disease and, and deliberate murder. What about that? And most shockingly is how you know the money legacies remain true. One of the richest MPs in Parliament, obviously next to Rishi Sunak, is Richard Drax, whose family were instrumental in setting up plantation slavery in Barbados, 150 million pounds is worth. And quite understandably, people in Barbados want reparations. And so, again, this isn't stuff that's in the distant past. It affects lives today. So how do we start um, in the light of how 
truly global and um, truly deep in time, these systems have their roots. How do we start counting the benefits that Britain as a country and, and individual Britons perhaps uh, have received from the boons of empire? I feel, in my experience, when you mention the word reparations in Britain, people go crazy. They, <laughs> Truly. It just seems like people, people just think it's wild. But then I was like, actually, you know what? Can I just remind you, we have sort of paid, started, we started paying reparations. We were sued by the Mau Mau, right? Had to pay 20 million pounds in reparations. I think it's 20 million pounds in reparations and issue an apology for what we did there. The Good Friday Agreement included payments. You know, I would say that's a colonial thing, yeah. right? Um, the Church of England has paid 100 million pounds in reparations for slavery. You've got individual families in Britain, like the Gladstones, the Trevelyans, the Rentons, who are paying reparations. So it has started. It's not an abstract thing. This is something that's happening that people are thinking about in detail. And the world has truly started. I mean, Germany has paid actual reparations to its African colonies. And we are falling behind the international conversation by treating it as this wild, unreasonable conversation when it's happening in the world. And there are serious academics working on this stuff. There's serious economists coming up with numbers. I think there was a judge on the International Court of Justice which said that Britain owes 18 trillion in reparations for slavery, you know. Which, I mean, the mind boggles, right? But that is, you know, the mind is supposed to boggle because that's the scale of history and economics indeed that we are dealing with. Can you tell me about the role that um, disease played in making some areas of um, easier and sort of less easy to uh, conquer for British forces? This is where I can recommend Jonathan Ken Kennedy's Pathogenesis, How Germans Made History. He's, or he argues, and I very convincingly, how we underestimate the role that disease played in colonization. So, for example, we forget that, you know, before quinine, you know, it was impossible for Europeans to really stay or get into Africa properly. I mean, a European in Mali in the, I think, the mid 19th century had a 400, a 300% rate of annual mortality. I think that means that they probably weren't going to last more than four months. Yeah. You're right. three times dead in Mali if you have spent. Yeah, wow, that's, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, disease played a huge role in helping uh, the the settler colonists in America. You know, the, the it's often thought that the the settlers there arrived and murdered the indigenous people en masse, but actually they were helped hugely by disease. Mm. And disease played a huge role in their decimation. It played a role in the Tasmanian genocide. It played a role everywhere. And we need we shouldn't underestimate what white people just arriving in these places did. But often the people, I mean the people, the very religious people who arrived in North America saw it as a gift from gift from God. That they'd been given permission to take this place because all these people were dropping dead. Yeah, very, very Yeah, that's dark. extremely grim, doesn't even begin to cover it. Um, and of course, it does um, uh, raise the question about um, how British empire is conceived of as a sort of creative versus, versus a, a destructive process, right? As, as some, something that went into places and like built institutions, uh, built industries, built railways versus uh, something that um, needed to 
uh, raise vast um, areas of, of, of land, natural reserves, um, literal buildings in order to facilitate this process of wealth extraction. How do you figure, um, uh, how do you wrangle with that question in your research? You know what? I, I, I don't want to patronise you here, but there's an analogy that really helped me understand how it worked. I wouldn't buy, I don't buy the idea that empire was one thing all the time, that it was always about wealth extraction. It was different things. You could say, for example, if you wanted to compare British Empire to a school where the classes were the colonies and the headmaster was in London giving out instructions and British Empire was nothing like that. For one thing, it could take months to get a message from the headmaster to the individual colonies. Quite often, each classroom was being run by the teacher in charge according to their own rules because they they couldn't communicate with London. Sometimes the legal system, the, rules, the school rules in that classroom were kept as they were. Sometimes they were changed. Sometimes there was a massive crisis in a classroom. London heard about it. They sent an inspector and they changed the rules. And so that was kind of the chaotic way in which empire worked. But during the early 20th century, it did become quite direct in places like India and but even in India you know gosh certain parts of India were run directly by the British some of them were run indirectly they were given to the princes certain Indian princes who were allowed to carry on governing and the legacies in those different areas of India are different there's studies being done that show that in those areas governed by the Indian princes there was more religious violence and less caste violence and it was the other way around in the British places. So, yes, I'm basically saying I don't entirely buy your by your characterization of the British Empire. <laughs> That's, I mean, almost inevitable. But um, I think taking your analogy, um, one could argue that like, yes, there are maybe sort of um, individual contradictions, and maybe um, a class-based analysis could help us here thinking about okay, you know, yes, there were these. Um, uh, colonial uh, sets of incentives and uh, you know capitalist sets of imperatives as well there of course and many people would think of those as very much a you know hand in glove but there were also um the interests of the uh, native ruling classes or the ruling classes that were already ensconced in these areas um when we talk about um, colonised and formerly colonised places, it, we can talk about it in this sort of um, uh, flattening way when we uh, are talking about, OK, there were no institutions and then Britain came along and um, introduced all of, the, all of these institutions for good or bad. Um, sometimes there's chaos, um, according to some people. Sometimes uh, they are a great um, purveyor of enlightenment and democracy. How do you come down on this? Uh, I, my argument being that opposite things can be true at the same time. I fundamentally believe that British Empire caused, resulted in a certain amount of democracy without doubt. A lot of the academics, mostly, I would say there's a consensus on that, but also installed massive chaos. So chaos, Kashmir, Iraq, Sudan, Myanmar, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Palestine. I mean, these are places where we fundamentally changed their makeup and set them up so they were inherently unstable. But without doubt, I mean, the studies have been done and found that British Empire resulted disproportionately more than any other kind of colonialism in democracy. It's not that the British were giving democracy to people. Quite often, they weren't. 
You know, in India, democracy was not freely offered. In Hong Kong, only one governor ever tried to make democratic reform. Right, and, and the protesters you know. were sort of mowed down by exactly. colonial forces in their masses, right? Yeah, and uh, Sir Mark Young in Hong Kong tried to introduce democratic reforms. His successor tried, undid them. In Iraq, when we were charged, parties could be banned at will, right? In Kashmir, when we sold it to a monarch, a tyrannical monarch, that was not democratic. But lots of former British imperial territories did end up having democratic institutions. And one of the weird things that happened is that when these countries became independent, like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Ghana, they often chose to have a Westminster constitution. And this is a paradox that colonial, the colonized, when they were becoming independent, choose to have the British Westminster constitution. It's a weird thing, isn't it? So even in their independence, they were choosing a form of colonization. That's a really difficult thing to get your head around. But there was one guy, I think he's called Sir Ivor Jennings, who was like, I guess, the most powerful consultant in history, who went around advising all these governments on how to have a Westminster constitution. Mixed results, I think we can say. It sort of depends what you are pointing out when you are thinking about uh, the idea of democracy, which is obviously a massive question. Uh, one for another podcast, maybe. Um, but Yeah, and also democracy often results in instability. You know, it's not necessarily a, it results in peace. You know, you know there's a lot of... Uh, chaos there too. Right, I think it's um, a question of whether or not you regard that as a paradox um, comes back to, um, again, this question of uh, what we're calling a, a contradiction, what we're calling uh, something that is um, uh, complex versus something that we can attribute to, for instance, the, the hypocrisy of the ruling class or the way in which certain um, ideological gestures that we might in a vacuum be able to point to as like um, independently positive are in fact folded into like an overall logic of governance, right? We're going to occasionally have like bits and bobs of a free media, but in order that we don't actually have a revolution because we still want to take your guys as rubber, for instance. And I think maybe this is, this is um, uh, where I'm interested in how you figure um, what this kind of, you know, democracy progress, the kind of um, positive side of what you call the complexities, like what, what does that mean to you? What do you imagine when you think of the sort of a democracy, free press, enlightenment side of British Empire? I don't see them like living, I mean, in a living in a very clean way. Everywhere I look is always complicated. Um, but I mean, looking at somewhere like Singapore, it's a pretty stable state, you know, which is fairly democratic. But often it's claimed that India is the greatest legacy of the British Empire. And look at India, the biggest democracy in the world. But, you know, in India, when we were working towards independence, you know, even in 1935, the Viceroy could take over and rule India. So the idea that we gave India that democracy is absurd, mm -hmm. you know. It was dragged out of the British and it was the Indians who made India democratic. So I absolutely buy your skepticism <laughs> with that, you know. But like somewhere like Nigeria, you've got basically a country that some people occasionally and some Nigerians call uh, almost failed state. But it's also a massive democracy, which sort of works. And so you've got both things at the same time 
in Nigeria. And often it's claimed with like going into law that India is a great example of uh, the justice that the British Empire bestowed upon the world. You know, India comes out quite low in, in surveys of, of world justice. There's an sur annual survey, I think it's called the World Justice Project. And India came out as 79th in, out of 139 nations last year. Does that reflect well on the British Empire? Also, what did we have to do with that? It's highly debatable <laughs> whether you could claim that as a positive legacy. You've talked about um, decolonization as um, taking the ghee out of a masala omelette, which, of course, I mean, sounds delicious. Uh, can you um, unpack that uh, delicious metaphor for us? Like, why do you think that it's uh, it's kind of a futile task? I do believe I do believe in decolonization. I think that it can do really important work, help people reestablish their confidence and identity and dignity in the face of colonization. But there's a limit to it. I mean, there's a massive mission of decolonization in India at the moment. So, you know, suddenly people are allowed to do medical degrees in non-English languages, right? Uh, statues are being, colonial statues are being brought down. Ayurvedic specialists are allowed to do surgery. But I don't see Modi trying to stop Indians play cricket because that's a religion. <laughs> How do you stop India playing critic? How do you stop all the countries in the world where we made people drive on the left or the right? I forget which side of the road we do. We drive on the right. We don't drive we? on the, and I'm, I'm doing the left and right thing with my hands. We drive on the left. There left. we go. We drive on the left. We did it. Oh we drive God. on the left. I was a former motoring journalist and that's sudden there brain fade. Um, how do we get rid of, I mean, entire nations created by the British, Sierra Leone, Pakistan, those are colonial institutions. How do you undo white feminism? Um, I think these things are too profound to really decolonize. And also when you're saying, what I'm saying is that the legacies are contradictory. Do you get rid of the, of the positive legacies or the negative legacies? Because there are both. Do you get rid of the environmental destruction? Do you make up for that? Or do you get rid of the environmentalism? I mean, which, which bit? Because they're both colonial. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, way... <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way in which you're phrasing um, what decolonization means seems to be a kind of an, an undoing. Like we can go back and undo the past. And a lot of people um, think about decolonization as a more future orientated act of repair, act of justice. It's not about, you know, we can we can allow people to play cricket. Eventually I'll learn the rules, I'm sure. Uh, but it's more about, you know, uh, reparations, um, uh, undoing of um, an organisational principle of um, domination and wealth accumulation that, according to many critics, underpinned and pushed forward, gave the reason for colonisation in the first place. Yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying. I believe in a, a lot of things to do decolonisation. I believe in returning loot and, and so on. I guess... Going back to that 18 trillion reparations figure, I just believe that is unrealistic. I don't think Britain's ever going to pay 18 trillion pounds in reparations. I mean, should they? Probably. But it's not going to... I just don't believe that'll happen. I guess that comes down to politics. And I don't think it's practical. I, I just can't see it happening. And some of these things are too profound. I mean, the British education system around the world, it's so entrenched. I don't know how you undo that. And it's all... A legacy of empire. It just feels like too much to undo. But I think it's a good aspiration. So what do we do then? I think you... <laughs> oh my God, the solution. We 
try to be more honest when we're going around the world lecturing people about democracy, human rights, uh, and the environment. Uh, we talk to the CARICOM nations about their reparations, and we we have actual economic policy towards them, and don't make their problems worse. We return loot. Even if we return all the contested loot in our museums, we still have 99.9% .9 of our stuff in our museums. You know, we lose our intrinsic defensiveness for anything to do with the empire. And yeah, I think that would be just the beginning, but it would be quite a big move in Britain because I feel like we're way behind even European nations. I mean, even the Dutch royal family have apologized and have commissioned serious historians to look at reparations, whereas what, what have we done? Hardly anything. And uh, on that note, I think that's probably all we have time for. Sathnad, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for your very intelligent questions. <laughs> thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.